Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news and analysis podcast produced by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor here in our newsroom in central Moscow. This week on the program, the United States has issued Russia an ultimatum. Start complying with the INF Treaty, or we're out. The Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, signed back in 1987, is the only Cold War arms control agreement that remains intact today. We can find ourselves in a situation of uncontrolled arms race with a new Cuban crisis ahead. We'll ask Alexander Goltz, a Russian journalist and military expert, whether the treaty can be salvaged. And later in the program, after a dramatic naval skirmish between Russia and Ukraine two weeks ago, Ukraine has banned all Russian men aged between 16 and 60 from crossing into the country. We'll speak to journalist Natalia Vasilyeva, who recently visited a town on the border, about how the ban and the conflict between Moscow and Kiev has separated friends and family. It's just a perfect example how the war is impacting daily lives of ordinary people. We'll ask how the ban is likely to play out. First up, the United States Secretary of State Mike Pompeo issued Russia an ultimatum this week while he was on a trip to Brussels. In light of these facts, the United States today declares it has found Russia in material breach of the treaty and will suspend our obligations as a remedy effective in 60 days unless Russia returns to full and verifiable compliance. For months now, the U.S. has accused Russia of violating the INF Treaty signed by Gorbachev and Reagan in 1987. But insiders say that the constant U.S. threats to ditch the agreement may actually come as a relief to the Kremlin. Joining us on the line to talk about how Russian officials are reacting is Alexander Goltz, a Russian journalist with a background in military affairs. Alexander, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. It's a pleasure. Does the U.S. have a point, Alexander? Is Russia violating the treaty? If you ask uh, me, are there smoking guns in American proofs of violation? I will say no. Uh, It is based on logical assumptions and uh, some theories. And uh, you cannot uh, point out, as it happened during Cuban crisis, look at these uh, uh, missiles. Well, U.S. Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats was pretty clear in November when he said it was specifically the 9M729 missile system that was in direct violation. That's a smoking gun, isn't it? America, as uh, Mr. Coates, who is chief of national intelligence, of U.S. Uh, explained uh, there was uh, American has have proofs uh, that one day Russia uh, tested this uh, Novator missile. Such kind of proofs needs uh, long explanations, and uh, Russia can easily reject these kind of explanations. My, in my humble opinion. Uh, it means that Americans uh, uh, have something more. They have another kind of evidence. But for different reasons, they don't want to put it uh, on the table. It looks that they gave some proofs to their European alliance. 
as uh, you can remember, a month uh, ago when uh, President Trump first stated uh, the idea of withdrawing from INF Treaty, uh, he met rather cool approach from European states. But now, after some kind of consultations within NATO, uh, NATO supported uh, unanimously uh, American theory. In my mind, it means that Americans gave something more. In 2007, Vladimir Putin and his defense minister at the time, Sergei Ivanov, threatened to pull out of the treaty. Does this indicate to you that Russia is also not interested in, 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 sticking, to the, in sticking to the treaty? I think it's a little bit different. Uh, for a long time, uh, Russia blackmailed its American counterparts the possibility of withdrawing the treaty. Uh, It was some kind of diplomatic game. Uh, Russia was and is interested in uh, existing of INF. Well, can you explain specifically why Russia would like to see the treaty prolonged? Uh, The main reason is that if uh, INF is dead, sooner or later, not only Russian, but also American medium-range missiles will appear in Europe. And it means that uh, we are returning uh, to situation before INF was signed. Russian missiles can reach uh, main command centers and uh, capitals in uh, Western Europe, but they cannot reach uh, American cities. But American missiles can reach uh, command centers and vital cities on Russian territory. From Russian military point of view, uh, it's uh, a rather difficult strategic situation. In a column for the Moscow Times, foreign policy expert Vladimir Frolov said that one reason Russia was worried about the treaty collapsing is because Russia would then lose its superpower status. What do you make of that assessment? Generally, I agree. But I think this argument is uh, not first on the list of Russian complaints. Uh, As I mentioned before, uh, the basic problem is that appearance of American medium-range missiles in Europe will uh, change dramatically strategic situation for Russia. Would Russia be able to compete in a new arms race with the United States or the West? Theoretically, yes. Uh, it can compete. Uh, But again, uh, if you have medium-range missiles, they cannot uh, reach uh, 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 their uh, main command centers and cities of main adversary, United States. So uh, it will, even if Russia uh, can deploy huge number or big number of this missile, it uh, will not give uh, Russia strategic superiority. If Americans uh, deploy uh, such kind of missile, let me say that it will not happen tomorrow, uh, even if Americans withdraw. (laughs) First, uh, states have to design, develop, test, uh, and deploy this missile. Uh, Experts... um, There are uh, different experts' uh, uh, estimations from 
three years to 10 years. It depends on finance, uh, Congress approval, and uh, many, many other things. There is another very serious argument. It's not occasionally that uh, first START treaty was signed after INF. And the START treaty, of course, is another nuclear arms reduction treaty first signed by Bush and Gorbachev in 91. Both uh, treaties are deeply interconnected. In case INF treaty uh, die, the future of uh, START treaty will be miserable. It means that in 2021, uh, we'll find ourselves in situation which looks like uh, Soviet-American uh, situation before Cuban crisis. No any uh, agreements on nuclear arms control. How do you think the future of U.S.-Russia relations looks um, in wake of the fact that these arms con- control treaties appear to be under threat? I'm more than pessimist. It looks now both sides cannot understand um, all consequences of uh, their strong move to destroy all network, all system of international treaties on arm control. We can find ourselves in situation of uncontrolled arms race with new Cuban crisis ahead. And it means, unfortunately, that both sides need serious crisis, the same as Cuban crisis, to understand uh, that they badly need to control somehow nuclear weapons. The question is, will we survive in next crisis or not? Thank you for taking the time to be with us today, Alexander. It was a pleasure. Russia's relationship with Ukraine has spiraled following a naval skirmish off the coast of Crimea last month. Today, Ukraine banned Russian men of combat age, 16 to 60 years old, from entering the country. It is a move introduced under martial law. Natalia Vasilova, a journalist working for the Associated Press, visited the town of Cherkova, straddling Russia's border with Ukraine, to find out how the ban and nearly five years of conflict has complicated daily life. Hello. Hi, Natalia. It's Jonathan here at the Moscow Times. First of all, tell us about the two sisters you met, Valentina and Raisa. Well, I have to say this is one of several um, extraordinary stories that I encountered um, in what is essentially one village, but called Chertkovo on the Russian side and Milovo on the Ukrainian side. Uh, This is hugely typical because for centuries it used to be one village. And in the Soviet times, it was divided by what at the point was the administrative borders. And people living in that area um, were mostly oblivious of the border. Um, We met one man who told us that it wasn't until high school that he realized that some of his friends were living in what's technically the Soviet, uh, the Russian Republic. And he was living in the Ukrainian Republic. So for uh, Valentina and Raisa, it's an absolutely typical story. One of them uh, lives on the Ukrainian side, which is Valentina, and Raisa, her sister, lives just across the road, literally 200 meters away from her, um, on the Russian side. Um, and it's just a perfect example how the war is impacting lives, daily lives of ordinary people. 
because if you if you look at Chertkova and Milove, um, the main cemetery on the Ukrainian side, which means that for Aisa uh, to visit her parents and to visit her late husband, who died before the start of the war, she would have to cross the border. And um, five years ago, um, she would just sneak across the street into what was technically Ukraine and go and lay flowers to the grave of her parents. Um, what she has to do now, she has to go through all of the proper border control. But on top of that, not just since last week, since when Poroshenko, President Poroshenko announced those restrictions, um, much earlier than that, since 2015, all of the Russians traveling to Ukraine um, are now obliged to travel on so-called foreign passports which are the passports required for foreign travel and uh, most people in rural areas have no access to them um, it costs extra extra money it may cost up to a sometimes half or quarter of your monthly income uh, this is not something that you can obtain in your village and she's 76 she doesn't have a foreign travel passport so um, since Ukraine imposed this ban in 2015, she has not been able to go and visit the grave of her parents because she doesn't have this document. So how has the most recent ban imposed within the last week by Ukraine impacted life in these two cities, in these two towns? Well, yeah, it's interesting because when I when I went there, I had an idea that I would encounter people who would be telling me that, um, for example, I was going to go to the market on the other side in Ukraine because the largest uh, grocery market, sort of the Sunday weekend market thing, um, happens every week on the Ukrainian side. And I was thinking I was going to run into some man who would say I was going to cross over and buy potatoes and now I can because I'm, I don't know, 40. Um, what I actually saw, what I actually discovered was a little bit different. Um, well before this ban was enforced, locals stopped traveling because, I mean, Russians stopped traveling to Ukraine because Ukrainians are not really facing um, similar problems on the Russian side. People started traveling because they faced uh, extensive background check interviews. Some of them told stories of being stopped and arrested uh, on the Ukrainian side. And just like in every small place, you hear one bad story and it spreads across town and people just realize that it's not worth it. So actually, uh, every single person I spoke to in Chertkova told me that this ban doesn't mean anything for us because we've stopped traveling a long time ago. And wow. the only people who I've met um, who uh, are still regularly visiting the other side are um, elderly women um, like Lydia Radchenko, who is in her uh, late 70s. Three of her sons live in Ukraine, just across the border. And, you know, she did apply, she had a passport from a while ago, the foreign travel passport, so she travels. But she was literally the only person I've met who still travels to Ukraine. It sounds like the residents here are on the, the blunt end of decisions being made by politicians in Moscow and in Kiev. Are, are people frustrated? What are people in the town saying about the conflict between the two countries more broadly? Yeah, it was actually very interesting to talk to them about the war because what I heard there was... Um, absolutely different from uh, the usual discourse you can hear on the Ukrainian television and in the capital Kiev or on the Russian state television and, you know, in Moscow political circles. Mm. 
Um, I did not hear anyone trying to vilify the other side. Wow. I did not hear anyone trying to dehumanize the other side because, you know, if you turn on the Russian TV, you can hear the stories about, you know, fascist Ukrainians and like Ukrainians bent on destroying the Russian uh, governments. People are very clear, ugly, right, about politicians and about what's happening. And um, uh, people, actually, a lot of people on both sides still watch both Ukrainian and Russian television uh, because most of them bilingual. There are some native Ukrainian speakers living on the Russian side. There are many Russian native speakers living in, on the Ukrainian side. And they say, you know, we watch and compare, as in we watch and compare coverage of what's happening uh, in the region Well, when we know it's not true, when we know that one side is vilifying the other. And uh, the predominant view is that uh, politicians on both sides are um, just taking advantage of the situation to their own end. So um, it was it was very, very clear eyed because those people are in the way on the front line of the conflict. But what I found different is um, compared to Eastern Ukraine, compared to Donbass, where you have the actual front line and the actual fighting, uh, you know, when one side shells the other, um, uh, there, there was, I, I find that in Donbass there is a much more um, radicalized discourse because you see one side basically killing the other and the other way around. Uh, there was nothing of, of, the, of the kind in Chertkova and Milove because those people know who live on the other side. Wow. Uh, those people are families. And um, yeah, everyone is just very frustrated. I saw people on both sides of the border who were telling me about how great things were five years ago and ten years ago, and they are completely at a loss and have no idea why um, why this is happening. And it's like no one asked them about this fence uh, because my, my 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 story, like the thing that struck me about this village, was this barbed wire fence, right. uh, which was uh, built by Russia just three months ago. Um, but the point is, when you start talking to people about this fence on both sides, uh, and you mention, well, it was Russia that built it, people say that it doesn't really matter, because to them, um, you know, it's it's a symbol of just how bad things have become. As in, Russia built it, but, you know, Ukraine allowed it to happen. This fence basically become, became a symbol of just, you know, how far down the relations deteriorated right. on the ground. We've been hearing reports that transport hubs are struggling to deal with the number of Russian passengers who are being turned away by Ukrainian authorities. Is there any sign that the ban might be lifted soon? Or how do you see this playing out uh, more generally, more broadly? Uh, well, technically, the, the current ban uh, should be in place for as long as the martial law is in place. And the martial law is supposed to be lifted uh, at the end of the month. Uh, but what we're seeing at the airports and train stations is actually not is not new at all. There was a similar situation in spring 2014. Um, that is, at the start of the conflict in Donbas, I personally I was traveling a lot. I was flying in into Kiev a lot uh, at that time, especially because you were able to fly in directly from Moscow. And um, I had been stopped at the border. I saw other passengers being stopped at the border. Uh, mostly, I was the only woman who was stopped at the, who was stopped uh, at, at the border. Uh, all other people were men exactly of that age that Ukraine is now targeting. That that has been happened, and um, just like any other border authority in any other country, 
uh, the Ukrainians are saying, and they have the right to say that, you know, we're conducting uh, interviews, we're conducting background checks, and we decide on case-to-case basis. Um, a lot of people were, as they call it, turned back in 2014 and 2015. It wasn't that much publicized. And uh, just on a personal level, I know so many people who have just given up plans to travel to Ukraine, whether it was tourism, whether um, it would be a uh, business conference. Um, so that has happening, that has been happening for a while. So my, my understanding is that uh, the ban should be lifted. I obviously cannot predict that to happen, but Russians will still have problems at the border. Natalia, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And to finish off, Russia's culture minister, Vladimir Medinsky, is making headlines again. After successfully leading the charge to ban the death of Stalin this year, Medinsky is going to battle with another Western blockbuster. That's right. Medinsky is lashing out at Fantastic Beasts, a film written and co-produced by J.K. Rowling, which he says took up 70% of screen time in Russian cinemas last month. He's called on the Russian authorities to protect the film industry from what he said was the global machine that is Hollywood. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Piotr Sauer. And thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News.